Hebrews chapter 13. And I'll read verses 5 through 9. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I'll not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. And considering the result of their conduct, imitate their life, their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. Let's pray together. Father, this is my last word from this pulpit in the 1900s. And I long for it to be a saving word and a strengthening word, an empowering word, a healing word, an encouraging word, a transforming word, a divine word by your Spirit's enablement and by faithfulness to your revealed word. So, Lord, help me and help us and move in this room, I pray, so that this moment of worship in the word would be all those things and more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today is the last Sunday of the 1900s, and as most of us are aware, the year 2000 is technically the last year of the 20th century, but if I read things right, the significance of the change from this year to next year is far more significant in most people's minds than next December is going to be. I think it will all be very anticlimactic as we enter the 21st century next December. Everybody's thinking about it this year. And so I asked myself the question in response to all the hype and all the apocalyptic alarmism and all the sales of the end time novels and all the generators and Y2K rations and all the buy gold and get on the bandwagon stuff that's out there. How should Christians feel and think about changes in seasons and years and centuries and millennia? And as I pondered what text would be the most appropriate, as you can see from the worship folder, I have chosen to highlight Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Three questions about that verse. Number one, what does same mean? That is, how is he always the same? In what sense is he always the same? Second question. What is 
significant about each of those three time periods. Yesterday, today, and forever. Why do each of those matter in his sameness? Third question. What's the application of this verse for our lives taken from the context in Hebrews 13 backward toward money and forward toward false teaching? Okay, that's the outline. Let's do it. Question number one. In what sense is Jesus always the same? Does that mean, for example, that he can be displeased, even grieved over your behavior today and can't be happy with your behavior tomorrow because that would be a change. And he's always the same. So does this sameness lock him in to a flat, either emotionless, unresponsiveness Or is there some way that we can understand sameness while allowing for real differing responses to our differing conditions? It is significant that in this same book, chapter 4, verse 16, he is called a sympathizing high priest, which means what? What does sympathize mean? Sympatheo. It's the same word in Greek as it is in English. Sympatheo. It means to feel with. Well, if he's going to do that, he's got to change all the time. In some sense, it seems like I'm up some days, I'm down some days, I'm discouraged some days, I'm really happy some days, I'm grieving some days, I'm angry some days. If if he's a high priest who can move in alongside me with some sense of sympathy or empathy, then um, he can't be a, a stone. Now, to answer the question, well, how should we understand then his sameness, his unchangingness, over against this possibility, we hope that he can be responsive to us and interact with us at that level. I want you to go with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 following. And the reason for going here, back to the front end of this book, is because there is only one other place in all the book of Hebrews where Jesus is said to be the same, over against something changeable. So if you look up the Greek phrase, same, there's only one other place it's used in the book, 1.12 and 13.8. And so we learn something very significant by this other usage. To set it in context, let's start at verse 8. But the Son of the Son, that's Christ, He, that's God the Father, of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God. Now just don't miss that. God calls his son God. The first chapter of the book of Hebrews is one of the most exalted portrayals of the Lord Jesus in the Bible. The very radiance of his glory, verse 3. The express image of his nature, verse 3. You read through this chapter, the whole point is to contrast Jesus with angels. Unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses who say he's the first and great angel. Over against that, you have Jesus called God in this verse. Let's read on. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, drop to verse 10. And you, Lord, you, Lord Jesus Christ, 
In the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They are all become like an old garment. Like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same. There's the phrase. You are the same. And your years will not come to an end. Now, the point of this text is that the sameness of Jesus, the everlasting constancy and unchangeableness and sameness of Jesus is rooted in his deity. That's the point. You, O God, you're God. And as God, you're creator. And as creator, different from all creation. And what's the difference? I just thought when I got to this point in my preparations, science. Science, to do its work, takes nature with all of its laws as the baseline constancy. This text says it isn't the baseline. It's a shirt. And when God is done with this shirt, he's going to take it off, roll it up, and give it to the free store. Or throw it in the fire, or whatever he does with the old universes that he's finished with. He's done. And we're going to discover at that moment that beneath this sun that's rising out there and has risen every day on schedule for thousands of years is not the constancy of God. Gonna roll it up. And there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. I just read it this morning in my devotions as I came to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. He's gonna roll it up and he's gonna toss it away and what comes will be like it and yet not like it and it and better than it. The deity of Jesus is the root of his sameness. Now, why is that significant? Because when I read Hebrews 13, 8, in its context and significance it's meant to have for me and my relation to money, me and my relation to false teaching, and the strength it's to bring into my life, I want it to have its whole force on me and you, and the whole force will come when we realize we're talking about sameness rooted in deity. Sameness because he's God. And that raises then the bigger question that we need to spend a few minutes on, the doctrine of God's immutability. That's the big theological word. Store it away. God's immutability, that is his unchangeableness. Now, that doctrine of God's unchangingness is based on texts like Malachi 3.6, which says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Jacob, are not consumed. Wow, I want to get this doctrine right if things like that hang on it. O Bethlehem, I am God and I do not change. Therefore, you, O Bethlehem, are not consumed. If that's true, if our not being consumed is rooted in his constancy, that's a precious doctrine. That's a precious doctrine. And we ought to know it, love it, live on it, feed on it, ground ourselves in it. It's based on other texts like 
First Samuel 15, 29. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. God is not a man that he should change his mind. Now, some of you are saying, hmm, I know verses where it says he changes his mind. Well, I do, too. In fact, two of them are in this chapter. For Samuel 15, you might want to turn there because I want to try to say something significant, I hope, and helpful about this issue of God's not being like a man that he should change his mind. Now, the the Hebrew word, naham, behind change the mind, is also translated sometimes and in some versions, repent. God repented or didn't repent or doesn't repent. Or regret in some versions. Two of those are found right here in verses 11 and 35. This is all about Saul and his disobedience and God's changing his mind about how he feels about Saul. So it says in verse 11 of 1 Samuel 15, I regret, that's NASB, King James says, I repent, or you could translate it as in verse 29, I changed my mind that I have made Saul king. Or again, in verse 35, the Lord regretted, repented, changed his mind that he had made Saul king over Israel. So, verse 11, God changes his mind. Verse 35, God changes his mind. Verse 29, the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. So, what are you going to do with that? Now, I suppose if those were in different books of the Bible, separated by a century or so, a critical scholar might say, well, look, you've got one author who has this theology about changeableness of God. You have another author who's got this theology about a changeableness of God. And so you got to choose and we don't have an inerrant Bible. It's got contradictions in it. But the problem with that easy solution is that this is the same chapter, the same story, same author who surely knows what he's writing. I mean, he hasn't lost his head in the scope of just a few verses. And so I prefer to take the approach, giving the writer the benefit of the doubt, that as he arrives at verse 29 and says what he says, he says it intentionally, he says it in full view of what he said in verse 11, in full view of what he's going to say in verse 35, and he says it in a way to help us handle those other two. Now, what would that be? How does he help us here? See, I I think in the mind of the writer of 1 Samuel, he knows he said something incredibly controversial and possibly misleading. He knows he's going to say it again. And so he chooses here in the middle to say something guiding, helpful, with regard to how to handle those two verses. 
Now let's notice carefully how he helps us. What does he say here that would tip us off that there's a kind of yes and no going on in this chapter? Yes, he changes. No, he doesn't. Yes, he changes. No, he doesn't. When you read things like that in the Bible, don't just throw up your hands and say, oh, good grief, a, a Bible contradiction. We can't believe it. Don't, don't think that way because you, you talk this way too. You say some things, if somebody heard him in that context, you say, well, that sounds exactly the opposite of what you said over here. But knowing the whole thing, you can say, oh, I see, it has this particular point, this particular application, this particular nuance over here, which it didn't have over here, and so there's not a real contradiction. Now, does he help us discover what that is in this middle crucial verse 29? I think he does. How does he do it? He does it in the second half of the verse with the words, for... He is not a man that he should change his mind or repent or regret. He's not a man. There's the key. He's not a man. So what, how does that function for us? What, what should that do in your head when you hear him say, yes, he does change his mind in some sense. And yes, he does repent, alter, turn in some sense, but not like a man does. Hmm. Now what would that be? What would that be? What does a man bring to his mind changes that God doesn't bring to his mind changes? And the most relevant aspect of man's finiteness that he brings to his mind changes is ignorance about the future. So he decides to do a thing, not knowing all the fallout of it, like makes all king or whatever. And not knowing it, something happens and he changes his mind. God doesn't bring that ignorance to the table. That's why it says he's not a man. When God brings himself to a decision... He does it in full view of all that will come of that decision. Full view of the perfection of his responsiveness to every behavior that will follow from that decision. And in full view of the appropriateness of this affection today and that affection tomorrow in response to this behavior today and that behavior tomorrow. There is real responding here to Saul, real responding there to Saul, and real difference between the two, and total knowledge of all that is and is to come. So that it fits into a plan of God that gives him a durability and a constancy that is far deeper than just saying he is like a big man who always loves always has wisdom and always has power, but doesn't have knowledge. God is not a man that he should repent. That is, when the Bible says he does repent, when the Bible says he does regret, when the Bible says he does change his mind, yes, he does. But not like a man. And so we have to go back and say, all right, what is a godlike way of doing it? What's a godlike way of doing it? Not a manlike way. 
And the most relevant and crucial difference between man and God at the point of decision-making and then having to change your mind is what knowledge you bring to those circumstances. So here's my conclusion from this unit and what it brings to our concern with Jesus as God who never changes and is always the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I would say two things. This chapter 15 of 1 Samuel teaches, number one, God really responds. God really engages. And he responds sometimes rejoicing in what he sees and sometimes grieving over what he sees. Sometimes in anger, severely disciplining or chastising, and sometimes in great mercy, just passing over sins. God is different in his responses to differing circumstances. But the second thing I would say in view of verse 29 is that none of that does he do like a man. He is not a man. He does not bring finitude to the circumstance. He brings total infiniteness of knowledge. And he foresees all that Saul will do, all that you will do. And thus he sees every perfect response that he will ever have toward you. And he forms his plans and they are coherent and unified. And there is a sameness and durability about that plan that is unshakable and unalterable and guarantees the fulfillment of all of his promises to you in the details and the big picture of your life and give you a place to stand for the year 2000 and beyond that is wonderfully firm. So my answer to my first question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the same yesterday, today, and forever, is not that he can't delight in you one day and grieve over you the next, nor even do the same at the same time because he sees some things that are so good in you and some things that are so bad in you. He's infinitely complex in his capacities to respond appropriately to every situation. I have this image in my mind. I didn't use this in the first service, but here's my, here's my vision of the mind of God. It's like the Pacific Ocean. Now, if you take a little boat and ride around on the Pacific Ocean, in some places you will find gigantic waves, 60 feet tall, winds blowing 60, 80 miles an hour, huge breakers, terrifying storms, squalls, loud, thunderous crashings. On that same Pacific Ocean, thousand miles away, in the same boat, you might be sailing along, and it's as smooth as Lake Nokomis on a windless August afternoon, seven miles deep, same ocean. Now, if you get in a spaceship and go up about 100 miles above the Earth and do your orbits and look down on the Pacific Ocean, it looks like one massive, glorious, blue, serene body of weighty water, untroubled by anything. Even though if you were down there, there'd be this magnificent storm in one place and this sweet calm in another. And yet, from another perspective, it is totally unified, totally serene, totally bounded by its appropriate borders and massive. 
The mind of God is capable. And that's a weak illustration. Believe me this week. God's mind can be tumultuously angry with a people somewhere in this world right now and bringing great judgments upon them and ecstatically happy right now with godly people in this room and other churches around this city as we worship Him. And that can change from year to year as you move on the ocean of the mind of God. And it's unity and it's unchanging plan and knowledge and character are glorious. So Jesus is the same in that he can respond out of a common character and out of a perfect knowledge and plan that all that he will do, he will do for our good and bring his plan for us in its detail and its big picture to a wonderful, perfect, fitting, God-honoring, soul-satisfying conclusion. Question number two. What's the significance of these three time periods, yesterday, today, and forever? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me give a sentence for each one, yesterday, today, and forever. Why is yesterday important for Jesus to be the same there that he is today and tomorrow? Why is yesterday so important? Yesterday is crucial because yesterday is the day when the Son of God came into the world and revealed who He is for us to know today. If there's a difference between the God we know in the Gospels, 2,000-year-old book, and the Christ, the God we know today, we don't know Him today. Because God has ordained that there be no other way to know Jesus Christ than through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We don't live on dreams. If you want to get to know Jesus today, I urge you, don't close your Bible and ask for the gift of dreams. You will wind up either in an asylum or in another religion. There is one way that we know God in Jesus Christ, and that is yesterday. We must orient our today's fellowship on yesterday's revelation. This is what it means to be a historical religion. God was pleased to send his son, the final word, as Hebrew says, into the world to be a man, to live, to act, to speak, to teach, to be interpreted by apostles, close canon, 2,000 years, now can we know him today? Now why is today important? It's because this is the only place we know him. Either you have a relationship with Jesus today or you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. You're not saved. Christianity is not historical knowledge. Christianity is a relationship with the living Christ today. If that doesn't exist, we're lost. But the only way to have it is to know Him through yesterday. So you open your Bible to the inspired record of His personality and His Word and His work. And you learn to know Him there. And the Holy Spirit takes that person's personality and by that Spirit makes Him real and present and powerful and sweet to you today. But if you try to close that book, 
and have a relationship with this Jesus, you will have no relationship with this Jesus. Yesterday is crucial. Today is crucial. What about tomorrow? If the Christ we met yesterday in the Bible and know today by his spirit as the same Christ of the Bible isn't the Christ of tomorrow and eternity, then we're lost because all of our future salvation and joy is him. I I stressed with all my might last week that the gift of reconciliation is not a package to be put on a shelf in the attic claiming promises, I received reconciliation. And you never open the package. What's in the package? A reconciled God is in the package. Reconciliation, <laughs> that, that big process, event, word, is nothing except a person stands forth reconciled to you. And if he isn't there, who cares about reconciliation? It doesn't even have meaning if he isn't there. And so it is with our salvation, our justification, and all these glorious words. If Jesus is not our Jesus tomorrow that's revealed in the Bible What's our salvation? What's the relationship? What's to be hoped in unless you're satisfied with a godless eternity? It's got to be tomorrow too if we're going to have any hope. So yesterday is crucial because that's where he revealed himself. Today is crucial. This is where we know him, love him, depend on him, trust in him. And tomorrow is crucial because our whole eternity will be beautiful, good, wonderful, satisfying because he will be there Not because things will be there or people will be there or a new creation will be there, but he will be there. Somebody gave me a book for Christmas called The Art of God. It's one of these big, beautiful picture books just published this year. Um, it's, It's photographed and written by an evangelical believer, and it is rich. Uh, And I flipped through it yesterday after I opened the gift and... uh, There was one scene, there were many, I I asked each of the family members, which scene moved you emotionally the most? And we all had different ones, but mine was what looked like an almost endless field of purple flowers with rugged brown trees coming out and some rocks in the distance. And I think it was a combination of the, the, the small softness of the flowers and the huge expanse of them and some ruggedness. It was just kind of a complex of contrast and beauty and swelling bigness. And I found my, you know what the emotion that I felt most was? Loss. That I'm going to die. Isn't that strange? I'm going to lose this. And I haven't even been there. Now at that moment... There's a crisis of faith. What are you going to do with that feeling? Some of you feel it about loved ones. Some of you feel it about school, believe it or not. Don't want to graduate. That's the way I felt when I finished Wheaton. I didn't want to leave. I love that place. Some of you feel it about work and other things. Loss. At that moment, you have a choice. Either become an atheist... 
or to transpose that joy up into its maker and say and believe and begin to feel the joy and the longings and the satisfactions and the swelling good feeling of looking out upon this kind of beauty is as nothing compared to what I will know in the presence of the maker of that beauty. And therefore, let it become an avenue of worship rather than a competition with the God who is to be worshipped. It won't be loss. It won't be loss. He will be the same and he is infinitely glorious. Last point. What about the application of this verse? Yesterday, today, forever, the same Christ for us. In relation to money as you move backward and false doctrine as you move forward. Here's what I mean by money. Start at verse 5 with me back in Hebrews 13. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Now, that's a staggering call, folks. That's a staggering call for simplicity of life and great generosity. Be content with what you have means watch out for the desire to be rich. It'll kill you. As I said last Sunday in one of the services, and as it says in 1 Timothy 6, it will pierce you through with many pangs. If you desire to be rich, it is deadly, and you will die. And so this is a good news pleading. Be content with what you have. Fix your face like flint against the American dream of consumerism. And we have had one season of it, largely this year because of the Internet with the crazy stock market and with all the e-commerce and with the advertising that bombards you on your ISP as well as your TV as well as your R-A-D-I-O. The, the, the bombardment of you can't be satisfied, you can't be satisfied, you can't be satisfied until you buy my thing convinces many of us and there's a warfare that we need to fight with all of our might. And it says, be content with what you have and don't love money and watch out. And then it gives you some wonderful incentives and they go like this. For he himself has said, this is verse 5, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's a sweetest sentence in the Bible almost. The Lord is my helper. Based on I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. So there wells up this tremendous confidence that's not rooted in any retirement plan. It's not rooted in any bank account. This tremendous sense of strength and hope and confidence and assurance and well-being and lion-like courage that's based on what? Christ is my helper. <laughs> That's all. That's all you need. And he has promised, I'll never, ever leave you. Whatever your financial situation, I'm there. I know it. Trust me. Seek my kingdom. I'll add to you whatever you need. And don't let the world define need. Let Christ define need. And believe his promise. And then comes another incentive. Verse 7. 
Remember those who led you and spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct they imitate. Their faith. Faith in what? Well, faith in these promises. What kind of life are you to observe? The life that they lived when they didn't have a lot of money and they weren't depending on their money and their heaven was their home and they were citizens of another world and they let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. Look at their faith and imitate it. And then comes... Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Meaning, if he made those promises early, if he fulfilled those promises in those leaders that you can now imitate, believe that he's the same God that will keep those promises today and on into eternity, and if he has a perfect knowledge and a perfect plan and perfect love and perfect wisdom and perfect power, then this sameness of Jesus can make you oaks of righteousness in the year 2000. And there's absolutely no reason to go into this next year anxious. Not even a minute before midnight on Friday. It's a glorious application of this great doctrine of the immutability of God that we don't have to love money and we can be free. So be free. Be free. Last application. False doctrine. You see the connection between verse 8 and 9? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings. The Bible says that in the last days there are going to come all kinds of strange teachings. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accord with their own desires. What's the solution to not being carried away? Carried away. Carried away. I hate the image, don't you? I don't want to be carried away. I don't like being carried by wind. Whiff here and a whiff there. I want legs. And I want them on the ground. Strong ground. I don't want to define under God where I'm going, not be picked up and whoosh off to some... Doctrine that's false. Well, that's the image we're supposed to feel. And the solution is Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And there are no new doctrines. There are no new doctrines. If they aren't old, they aren't true. If I say anything to you that's new, don't believe it. If it isn't in the Bible 2,000 years old, with a pretty good track record through the 2,000 years, put a big question mark over John Piper. Language may change. It's okay. I like to use fancy language. Shock people, wake people up. Language is not truth. Language tries to help communicate truth. So Jesus is the same, and his sameness is the solution to money and consumerism and his solution to heresy and other kinds of false doctrine. Because, take two words, truth and treasure. And we'll close with these. Jesus is truth that was the same yesterday. The truth is the same today. The truth will be the same tomorrow. And therefore, verse 9, don't be carried away by any new wind of doctrine that comes along. Sink your roots down in the old, proven Christian faith and treasure. 
The treasure that he once was as he appeared on earth and gave himself as the inestimable jewel, the, the pearl without price, the treasure hidden in a field as he gave himself that way. He is that today to us. He's the most precious thing in all the world and he will be the treasure for us forever and ever. And therefore, how can money take hold of us if we have a treasure like Jesus? And the only reason money takes hold of us and we become victims of consumerism and materialism is because Jesus is starting to fade in our affections. And his treasure is starting to look kind of old and unsatisfying. And we're in trouble when that happens. And we need to hear a message like this. And we need to get on our knees this afternoon. And we need to cry out, oh, Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Please have mercy upon me. Don't let me drift into callousness and thinking the baubles of the world. The bubbles. Remember Talitha on vacation? Beep. The bubbles that burst. Don't let me think that they're so special. Please keep me fixed on you, Lord Jesus. And he'll do that for you. He'll do it. Let's pray. Oh, Christ, we need you. The same Christ we learned to know in the Bible from 2,000 years ago. We need you today, standing forth from that word, showing yourself by your spirit in real living power, precious and treasured beyond all things. And we need the assurance that tomorrow you'll be there for us. And in 10,000 years, we will love you more with greater delight than we've ever known or loved now. So come in this room now, Lord, to do that for people. I pray for any who came in unbelievers that the picture of Christ that we have seen will be winsome and compelling. Would you open their hearts and cause them to give heed and believe and be saved? Would you stand with me for a benediction? Now open your eyes. That's what a benediction is. I'm talking to you, asking God to do something. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and, and give you peace rooted in his unchanging truth and his unchanging treasure. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed.